We're in uh, Ruth chapter 3, 1 to 13. That's our text for tonight. And uh, as always, I like to recap. It becomes harder and harder each week as I have more material to recap. So this is, this is, this is our sixth sermon tonight in the book of Ruth. Sermon number six. And uh, if you want, all these sermons are, are, are online for free. Go to SoundCloud, search Lynchburg City Church. Or you can go to the website, lynchburgcitychurch.com. Click on the sermons page if you want to catch up and hear some of these past sermons. The fact that this book is named after Ruth is truly remarkable. Truly remarkable. I say this every week because it is. It's just, it's such a big deal when you understand that this is the only book in the entire Old Testament that is named after a non-Israelite. Only book. Got 39 of them. Only one named after a non-Israelite. More to the point, she's a Moabite. Also truly remarkable. Because the Israelites, they didn't, they didn't really like the Moabites. They, they didn't have a good view, a good perception of the Moabites. Kind of like you think of ISIS. We don't really have a good opinion of ISIS. They don't have a good opinion of the Moabites. So the fact that this book is named after her, it's pretty crazy. But the story begins, <clears throat> opens up, it's during the time of the Judges. This is pre-Israelite monarchy. There are no kings in Israel. It's the time of the Judges. A very dark time in the history of Israel. And a famine has come and plagued the land. And, and the story centers upon a man, Elimelech. His name means, my God is king. His wife, Naomi. Their two sons, Malon and Kilion. They're from Bethlehem. Which you, meet, which you remember, it means house of bread. And there's the irony. There, there's no food in the house of bread. There's a famine. And so Elimelech makes a decision to move his family to Moab, which at first glance doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But Elimelech, as we studied earlier on in Sermon 1, he, he seems to only evaluate his decision based on what makes the most economic sense. Now, it's not wrong to evaluate things based on what makes the most economic sense. It becomes wrong when that's the only criteria for the decisions that we make. He doesn't think about the spiritual impact it'll have on his family, for his wife, whether she's going to have Christian friends, friends that love the Lord to worship God with. He doesn't think about his boys. Will will they have women who love God to, to marry? He only thinks about his decision to move to Moab in terms of dollars and cents. They make the move. They get there. Elimelech dies. His two sons, they get into relationships they have no business getting into relationships with, with girls who do not love God. And then they die. And then Naomi is left. She's buried her husband. She's buried her two sons. And she's essentially stuck there. Can't go back. Still famine. No food. It's a very bleak opening scene. In verse 6, verse 6, one day when Naomi is out working in the field, she hears that the Lord has visited his people. He's come to intervene on behalf of his people. The famine has lifted, the rains have returned. She can go back home. And so she goes back home. Her two daughters, Orpah and Ruth, they want to come with her. She loves them very much. Make no mistake about this. But Naomi, much like her husband Elimelech, has a tendency. She's a very practical, pragmatic person. Not, not much of a risk taker. Okay. And that's, that's going to be important for, for later on in a few minutes. Not much of a risk taker. Very practical, very pragmatic. And she knows that her daughters aren't going to have any life if they come with her. She knows what the Israelite perception of the Moabites is. She knows they're going to have a hard time integrating into their culture. She understands that. And in a culture in the ancient Near East in which a woman 
having some link with a man, be it her husband, father, um, or if she was widowed, her sons to take care of her made the difference between living in poverty and not. And she knows that like, if her daughters come with her, they're probably never going to get remarried. No Israelite guy is going to want them. And so she convinces them to go back. They say, we don't want to go back. Finally, Orpah leaves. And, and Ruth, Ruth doesn't want to leave. As we'll see, Ruth is a risk taker. She's optimistic. She's loyal. She's not going back. And Naomi tells her, once again, you need to go back. You need to go back. It's what's best for you. I don't want you living in poverty. I don't want you not having food to eat. You have a better chance you go back and marry a nice Moabite boy. Look, your sister Orpah, she's gone back. This is chapter 1, verse 15. She's gone back to her people, her gods. Do the same. As I said each week, she wasn't exactly the greatest example of faith. And this would be like if my mom told Diana, if I died, go back to Allah and go back to Islam. Like That may make the most economic sense, but yeah, no, don't do that. Like there's something beyond economics that we should consider. As one commentator points out, if Naomi was the highest example of faith in Israel, it's no wonder God brought the famine as justice on his people. She, I mean, Naomi just at this point, she, she's not very like solid in her faith. Like she's like got the Instagram Christianity thing going on and nothing more than that. Of course, at that point, Ruth, she has, will have none of this. She finally speaks up, finally lets Naomi know how she's feeling and says, listen, where you go, I'm going to go. Your people, they're going to be my people. Your God will be my God. And at that point, Naomi kind of shuts up and they go. They return. They get back. End of chapter one. The people come out to greet them. They're like, Naomi. She's like, don't call me Naomi. There's nothing pleasant. Her name means pleasant. There's nothing pleasant about my life. Instead, call me Mara. Call me bitterness because God, he's been so unfair to me. He's treated me so terribly. Well, they're living there. Chapter 2 begins. They're, they're living there. They've got to make it somehow. And so, in the beginning of chapter 2, the narrator gives us a little hint, a little foreshadowing. Says that there's a man, a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. His name's Boaz. That's all the narrator says. Just drops this little hint in the beginning of chapter 2. And so, Ruth asked permission to go glean in the fields. People would go glean in the fields. The poor people, they'd go glean in the fields. I keep talking about this each week, but I think it, it, it adds a lot of context to the situation. It's a very, one, it's a very dangerous thing to, for a, a woman like Ruth to go glean in the fields. She, she may be, become a victim of sexual, verbal, physical abuse. It's, it's very possible. It's a dangerous thing for her to go glean in the fields. In Israelite culture, they had a law. A lot of you are familiar with the law. You had to leave the edges of the harvest untouched. And if you dropped anything while harvesting, you had to leave it there. That was the social welfare program for the people. But what most people don't realize is even though that was a law, the poor people, the foreigners, the orphans, the widows, when they would come to glean, they would frequently be denied access to the fields which is the situation here. And so she asked, Mom, can I go glean? Naomi says, okay, and that's a dangerous thing. So she goes out to glean. There's no telling whether she'll actually be allowed to come into someone's field. Well, she happens to come across Boaz's field. His general manager essentially says, yeah, you can come glean. Boaz happens to show up that day. He happens to notice her. He happens to be very kind to her. 
happens to ask her out to lunch that day. And that night she comes home and she essentially killed it. She's got like 30 to 50 pounds of barley. This would have been like two weeks worth of wages in one day. She comes home and Naomi's like, okay, what happened? Like, you just have two weeks worth of wages in one day. What happened? Whose field were you in? Who showed you such favor? And she says the man's name was Boaz. And the wheels begin to turn in Naomi's mind. And that is where we pick up the story in chapter 3 right now. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? It seems that between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, a period of time has elapsed. Somewhere between, I'd say, five to eight weeks, possibly, have elapsed between the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3. And it seems, based on the the conversations that are now happening, that Naomi hoped that Boaz would take the initiative in establishing a relationship with Ruth. She kind of hoped that that would happen. Imagine every day, Ruth comes home. And Naomi's like, hey, did did he talk to you? Nah, he didn't talk to me. Next day comes, and Ruth comes up. Did he say anything? Yeah, he he said hi. Is that all he said? Like, next day she comes home. Yeah, yeah. Like, he, uh, he asked to borrow a piece of paper, you know, in my INFT class. Like, <laughs> is that it? Like, what's, what's going on? <laughs> so Boaz is kind of a slow mover. And Naomi, she's like, What's, what is happening? A lot of you guys, you're, you're laughing because you're, you're, you're the Naomi. You're, you're the roommate. Wait, did he, you know, did he walk you home? Like, what happened? Like, not, he, nothing? Like, he didn't talk. He said, he waved. That's not going to do it. That's not going to cut it. And so Naomi, it seems, hopes that Boaz would take the initiative, but he hasn't taken the initiative. Hasn't done anything. And now it's the end of harvest season. Like I said, there's, there's a gap between the last six to eight weeks. Between the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. And she's like, what is up with this guy? Some of you ladies, you're, you're here. You're like, I don't, what is up with this guy? Like he walks me home one day and then it's just like, hi the next. Like I don't understand it. Well, then you have something in common with Naomi and Ruth because they don't understand it either. Um, So she says this, she says, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Now, this rest, what exactly does she mean by using this word rest? Should I not seek rest for you? This this is a significant word. The same root word is found in chapter 1 verse 9 when Naomi is trying to convince her daughters to leave her and she prays this blessing on them. And in verses Chapter 1, verse 9, she says, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So when she says this in chapter 3, verse 1, the rest she's referring to is the rest that an Israelite woman would find in the security in the home of a loving husband. And the implied answer is, yes, yes, you should do that. It's a good thing. 
Some of you, some of you guys, you're, you're like, yeah, like, I want to find you a nice guy. I want to find you a nice girl. And you're like, yep, I'm all about that. That's, that's, let's make that happen. And she jumps into verse two and she says, is not Boaz our relative? Like, she's like, listen, I want to find you a nice guy. Is that okay? Yeah, that's okay, mom. Okay. All right. Well, uh, let's see. The first name I randomly think about, how about Boaz? Like, is that, you know, she jumps right into verse two. She says, is not Boaz a relative? With whose young women you were. See, he was winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So, this is, it's hard to use the word schemer in a positive way. But that's exactly what Naomi is right now. She is a little schemer. For better or for worse, she's, she's a schemer. And so, She's got a plan, and this is what the plan is. She just said, hey, I know where he's going to be. He's going to be out in the fields tonight at the threshing floor. So here's her instructions, verse 3. Verse 3, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak, more about that word in a second, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down... Observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. A lot to unpack here, so we're going to kind of hover over these verses for a second. Um, so much to say here. <sighs> Ladies, um, don't go chasing a boy. If you have to chase him to get him, there's a good chance you'll have to chase him to keep him. (laughs) But, however, there's nothing wrong with Gideon in his way. <laughs> there is an ancient proverb within the hockey community <laughs> that says if you want to score goals, you go to the front of the net. If you want to score goals, you go to the front of the net because most goals are scored near the net. Don't chase a boy, but there's nothing wrong with putting yourself in his way. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. So this is what she tells her. She says, listen, I want you to go. You, 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 need to get, you need to get his attention, okay? The only time he sees you is when you're hot and sweaty and you smell yucky and you're out working in the fields, okay? So, so what does I want you to do? Ruth, I want you to take a bath. I want you to take a bath and I want you to smell good. You need to smell good. Smelling good is important. Okay, and then I want you to go put yourself in his way and then I want you to wait patiently. So, so nothing wrong with that. Girls going out, taking baths. Girls, you should probably take baths. <laughs> and, uh, you know, do the other girl stuff that you guys do. <laughs> I, I don't understand the process um, yet. Maybe, maybe someday. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with putting yourself in his way and waiting patiently. For example, 
you know. Perhaps you're here tonight, and the fact that you're sitting on this side is more than just coincidence. Perhaps the fact that you're sitting on this side <laughs> is more than just coincidence tonight. Making some of you guys are like, oh my goodness, he knows. <laughs> How does he know? It's, it's funny. I just say, hey, you know, it's oh, what small group are you going to? Oh, Tuesday night. Yeah, me too. That's it's interesting. Oh, you're going Christmas. Oh, yeah. I guess I'll see you there then. <laughs> I thought we had something Wednesday night. No, we're going Christmas caroling. Okay. Last night, it was, it was funny last night. I, I'm not making this up. I, uh, Diana and I were going to go to movie night. We're going to have a date night. And I was like, can, can we invite some of the people from the church? And she's like, okay. So I was like, well, who do we invite? She's like, well, we can invite that person, that person. Um, and long story short, I invite all the members plus as many people I could think of. I think I sent out, I think I was, I, I can text from my laptop with my iMessage. So I think I was just command V, command V, like 50, 60 different people. And it was so funny because it happened about three times where people were like, hey, do you know if so-and-so is coming tonight? I don't know if so-and-so is coming. One person said, yeah, I've got homework, but if this girl comes, let me know because homework will be done then. Sorry, that happened. <laughs> Nothing wrong with putting yourself in his way, ladies. Nothing wrong with that. And then wait. And here, here's the hard part. Wait patiently. Okay? He's going to notice you. Because there's one thing that hasn't changed over a millennium is that boys notice girls. That is a fact. Boys notice girls. Um, so that's, that's the instruction that she gives to her. And a lot of people say, well, what in the world? Why is Boaz out in the evening time, like out at the threshing floor winnowing stuff? I don't even know what that is, but I'm pretty sure like they go out and they work during the day and they come home and they sleep like in the city. And that's, that's true. Under normal circumstances, that's how it is. Sun comes up, you go out and you work. Sun comes down, you go back into the city where there's walls and doors and locks. And that's, that's, that's how it, how it works. But it seems that there was an exception a few times a year at the end of the harvest where after they had gathered all their harvest at the threshing floor, and this is interesting, that the threshing floor, think of like a giant fire pit on the edge of a hill for maximum like wind coming through, and like a giant fire pit, it's all hard, compact, there's rocks around the edge to keep everything inside, and so what they do with all their harvest, they'd, they'd have it there, and they'd be in the threshing, uh, the, the threshing floor winnowing with their forks, throwing it up in the air, and the wind would come and blow all the really irrelevant pieces, the chaff, the pieces you didn't care about, they'd blow it away, and the heavy pieces, the kernels of wheat and barley, they would fall, and so what would happen is, after they had done this, and they had all, essentially, this is money, because land and this type of resources, this is, this is money, this is currency. They would, for a few nights, they would sleep outside to make sure that essentially all their work was not lost, was not eaten or stolen from animals or, or robbers. And so that's why he's, he's going to be out there. And so she says, listen, I want you to go, I want you to take a bath, I want you to smell good, I want you to put on a cloak. Now, now some of your translations, it may say she needs to put on her, her best clothes. Um, one commentator writes, in no case, including the present, does the word require the meaning best clothes as rendered by, um, the NIV, the, from here on forward, the nearly inspired version. That's, that's not what it's about. 
And I'm teasing if, if you have the NIV. It's a great translation. But, but right here, this, this word is kind of, it's kind of, uh, not accurate. For one, it wouldn't matter anyways if she put on her best clothes because he wouldn't see her anyways. She's going out in the middle of the night, wouldn't see her at all. And, and furthermore, this word cloak has a significance as well as a blanket. And in context like Exodus 22, 25 to 26, um, that's, that's what people would have. They'd have a cloak that would sometimes double as a blanket. And considering what Naomi is instructing Ruth to do, it might be cold out there. She's going to be out there in the middle of the night. So have this cloak. And yet there's even further significance that this word may have. And I say may. It appears, some commentators believe, that when she's telling her to put on this cloak, that Naomi very well may be telling Ruth, that she needs to end the period of mourning in her life. It's entirely possible that up to this point, she essentially was wearing her her clothes that signaled her widowhood. And I say may because we just know too little, honestly, about how long widows would customarily wear their mourning clothes. But I think there's a high probability. One of the questions I keep getting asked in small group is, Boaz is laying down some really like heavy game right now. Like I mean, he's blowing it up. He's spinning. Like he's just being a nice guy. Okay, to be fair, he's being a nice guy. But why hasn't he done something? Why hasn't he taken the initiative? If this is true, this would be the equivalent of her. She's buried her husband, yet she still wears her wedding ring and engagement ring. This would be like she buries her husband. She she's still dressed in black or whatever other cultural implications you could you could think. And and I mean this is. This is Boaz thinking, oh, I don't know, like he's, I don't think she's looking. I think she's still mourning. I mean, this is usually, you see social media, this is where people, they're in a dating relationship and then they get out of a dating relationship and it just says in a relationship, maybe for a couple days or a week as they mourn the loss of their person. And then it goes from in a relationship to nothing and then to, to single. And, and it's very possible that when she tells her to put on the cloak that she is saying, listen, and I hate this cliche, but you need to get on with your life. You need to let him know that you're available. You let him know that. Um, which, within the context, I think the support is for that, the fact that Boaz hasn't done anything. He hasn't made any type of, of, of move, you might say. And so, that's the plan that she has. Take a bath. Smell good. Grab a cloak. It's going to be cold. He's going to be out there. And uh, don't make yourself known to him right away. In fact, let him eat and drink and be merry. Let him enjoy himself, okay? Like, um, don't come and talk to him in the middle of the Rangers game. You're not, you're not going to get very far. <laughs> you're, you're like, like, wait for a whistle or a commercial or intermission. Better yet, if it's really serious, just wait till the game's over. Like, just, you know, let him enjoy himself and be, and be well fed and watered and rested. So, that's the plan. This text here has perhaps generated more scrutiny and debate than any other part in this story. Because, I mean, I don't care what century, century you're in. I don't, whatever century you're in, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, older girl giving the younger girl advice to say, hey, I want you to take a bath smell good, and I want you to go out in the middle of the night and lay at this guy's feet. Think about the implications of that. Like, 
Don't, and let me be clear, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Descriptive in the sense that the narrator is saying this happened, like descriptive, like Judas hung himself. Like, don't, don't go and do that. Like, don't be like, you know, when you're sitting in the conduct office saying, hey, listen, I heard this from this story, like, that won't work, won't work. So this is, this is very descriptive. But what's generated a lot of debate is, what exactly is Naomi advising Ruth to do? Because this seems like kind of risque behavior, regardless of what century you're in. So what exactly? Especially this becomes compounded when you understand that this is the type of behavior of a prostitute. Prostitutes would do this. You know, before they, they clock on, go on their shift, they take a bath, they smell good, like, and they'd usually go out in the middle of the night. In fact, in this culture, when the men at the harvest time were sleeping out in the field for these days or, or weeks or however long they're out there, the women would come and visit them. They'd come and solicit them. And so when you understand that with what Naomi is telling Ruth, it's like, what ex- like, is she telling her to do like, like bad stuff? Like, like, it's like, here, here's the, it's like, where exactly is the line? Is she telling her to go over the line? And my answer, and this is debated, my answer is no, I don't think she's telling her to cross over the line. I do think she is telling her, however, to dance on top of the line. <laughs> um, it's, it's pretty edgy, regardless of what century you're in, what she's advising her to do. And not only is it, quote unquote, edgy, but, this is a terrible plan. Uh, I'm all about taking risk, throwing the ball to the end zone, whatever. But this, this plan has so many ways that it could possibly go wrong. Given, given what I just told you about prostitutes in this day and age, I mean, what are the odds that Boaz is going to wake up in the middle of the night? I don't know if you've ever woken up in the middle of the night. It's, I mean, it's even hard to even like get your steps together. It's, I mean, it's, it's hard to think clearly, let alone move straight. And so what is, what is, what is he to think? He wakes up. What is he to think when it's Ruth, but she's acting like a prostitute would act? What is he supposed to think? Even if he's thinking clearly by some miracle, what is he supposed to think in the fact that here's a woman Proposing to a man. Not just a woman proposing to a man, a foreigner to a citizen, a naturalized citizen, uh, an employee to the boss. This isn't a great plan. This plan has, I don't know, like a 99% like success rate that it's going to go terrible. It's a bad plan. And I think that what makes it the most interesting is Ruth doesn't suggest this plan. She's the risk taker. She's the one that left Moab, that left her people, that told, told Naomi, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. She's the one that risks possibly living in economic poverty her whole life. Naomi's the one up to this point that says, don't come, it won't work out. She's the one that's very practical, pragmatic, and yet she's the one suggesting this. At this point in the story, Naomi has gone from what at one point was a very dysfunctional view of God, a very immature faith, a very, like I said, this Instagram Christianity to her faith is very strong. So is Ruth's, it appear. 
Because the only way this crazy plan works is if God's in it. Only way it works is if God is in this plan. Otherwise, it is cruising for a bruising. Like, this plan's not going to work. It's a terrible plan. Uh, like, whatever century you're in, it's, you understand the implications of what's taking place. It's a bad idea. And yet, Naomi suggests it, and Ruth says, I'm in. And the only way this is working, guys, is if God's in it. And it seems that their level of faith and trust at this point in Yahweh is pretty crazy awesome. At this point, it, we, we, we invert the pages of the text and, and look back at ourselves and say, do you trust God like these ladies do? I'm not saying do you come up with crazy plans like they do, but hear me out. Do you trust God the way these women do? Specifically in the context of relationships. There are a lot of single people in here. Do you trust God like them? How is this going to play out? Wow. All right. Here it goes. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, had his nachos, had his chicken wings, probably watched the Rangers game. He would have watched the Rangers game, I imagine. And, and, and his heart was, was merry. Probably because they won. That's usually when my heart's merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, verse 8, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Once again, doesn't matter what century you're in, you wake up in the middle of the night and there's a woman who smells really good at your feet. That doesn't happen all that often. Not to me, at least. I mean, next to me, but not at my feet. Like, this is strange. So she says this. He said, who are you? He can't really see. It's like, it's the middle of the night. He's groggy. What's going on? Who, who are you? And she answered, I, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Well, that's interesting. Once again, a, a contextual, descriptive part of the story. She tells him to spread her wings over her. Um, don't say that to guys. They'll be confused if you tell them that today. I, I mean, that would be weird to hear a, a girl say, please spread your wings over me. But make no mistake, this Boaz knows exactly what she's saying. This is a euphemism in Israelite culture and society for marriage. She is proposing to him. The ball has been thrown to the end zone. So, how is this going to play out? Next verse. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. 
I said, the only way this is working out is God's in it. And at this point in the story, I think we, we learn a little bit more about Boaz. It's come up a lot of times in small group. Why doesn't he, why, why is he being so kind? Why is he being so nice? Why hasn't he made a move? Is he just being nice just to be nice? What's going on? And we've, we've learned a little bit. I think to a certain degree, Boaz, yeah, he wants to be sensitive to her. Okay? He wants to be sensitive. And so, knows that her husband's died, but doesn't want to like, doesn't think, one, doesn't even know if she's looking for a relationship. And, and two here, verse 10 reveals a lot about Boaz. I think as, as guys, we can relate to this a lot. Boaz is, I mean, he's excited. Like, the girl he's been crushing on likes him back. Always, always a great day. Okay? Always a great day. She actually likes me back. For some of us, that is a miracle. It's true, like it is. Glory to God. But, but more to the point... <laughs> More to the point is this. One of the reasons Boaz hasn't done anything is because he doesn't think he has a shot. He essentially says, listen, you could have had whatever guy you wanted to. In Boaz's mind, he doesn't have a chance with this girl. Ladies, it's not that guys oftentimes don't like you. Like, man, no guy likes me. It's probably that some guy likes you. He just feels like Boaz that he has no chance. That you're out of his league. That you could have whatever guy you wanted. And that's how Boaz seems to feel right now. Part of the reason why Boaz hasn't done anything, that coupled with the fact that he's trying to be very sensitive, you know, her husband died. So, so this is working out real nice right now. Verse 11, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. There's debate, as I said, whether Naomi was telling her to cross the line if she was going to solicit him for a sexual favor, I, I argue, no, I don't think so. Why? Because everything up to this point in the story has pointed to Ruth as righteous and good. And here's another example, another uh, evidence of that. Verse 11. So then verse 12, it says this, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So it's like awesome news. The girl that he likes, likes him back. And he's all about like accepting her marriage proposal. And yet it's like pause, wait, challenge flag on the field. We got to review the footage. Oh, by the way. So here's the issue. There, there's a guy who essentially however you want to say it, has first dibs. And at some point, it's just there's a collective sigh that's just, what? Like, this is perfect, and that, you know, that perfect story, and now wait, it, it may not end like that. Even though she likes him, and he likes her. A lot of people argue that the only, I've heard some people argue, well, the only reason that Boaz likes her is because he feels obligated. It's the only reason he accepted her, her marriage proposal because he was a kinsman redeemer. And according to the Levitical law, Leviticus 25, 25 to 30, like he was obligated to like her, to be in a relationship. 
That's the only reason that, that he said yes to this crazy like situation request. And that just isn't the case whatsoever. Like some of you, you get into relationships because you feel obligated or you're a people pleaser. And you're like, oh, I just want to go along with it. That's a terrible idea. Or you're in a relationship right now and you're like, oh, I'm just staying in it because I don't want to upset the other person. And that's also a terrible idea. Make no mistake about it. Boaz says yes because he likes her. That's it. The idea that he somehow has to say yes to her is simply not true. This aspect of kinsman redeemer, when it comes to marrying your brother's wife, and this is really a custom, not a law, this custom only applies to the unmarried brother-in-law. Malon and Kilion are both dead, therefore he's not on the hook for this. He's not on the hook to like her back. He's not, he doesn't have to be nice to her. He doesn't have to be kind to her. He doesn't have to accept her marriage proposal. He really loves her. He really cares about her. And, and here's the thing, though. He's a noble man. He's a good man. He's a righteous man. And while this isn't the law, it is a custom that he wants to respect. According to Deuteronomy 25, 5-10, I think he's even going over and beyond his obligation, in my opinion. But he, he wants to respect this. And he says, listen, He's, he's thinking very much in light of Leviticus 25, 25 to 30. There's another guy. Essentially, he, he's got first dibs. But he says, at the end of the day, it's okay. Cause, um, you know, even if it doesn't work out between you and me, like he'll marry you and he'll take care of you and you'll be provided for. You'll be safe. It makes everybody crush on Boaz that much harder at that point. <laughs> You're like, oh my goodness, he, he just he couldn't get even more perfect. Um, his response is remarkable. Because that's not typically how we respond to disappointment or the possibility of disappointment on the horizon. We don't. Right? We, we don't. We get shot down by a girl, we get shot down by a boy, we're upset, we're frustrated. Right? So we vent about it. Or we, we, we make passive comments on social media about it and because our feelings are hurt, because we're embarrassed. And it is disappointing. But honestly, we, we rarely respond like Boaz does. I mean, here's the guy who says, listen, I want to marry you. I'm crushing on you. But oh, by the way, like, if this other guy does, you know, I'll be sad. I might cry. He doesn't say that. But it's okay to be sad. He might cry. He might be upset. might be disappointed. But he says, at least, he's just so much thinking of her in this sense. At least she'll be provided for. At least she'll be taken care of doesn't work out with you and me, that's okay. I don't know about you guys. I don't typically respond to these type of disappointing situations quite like Boaz does. Or I haven't in the past. You know, you get shot down, it sucks. His response is remarkable. And so I started thinking, how is it that he responds the way he does in, in the wake of Potential disappointment. Or why isn't it that we respond like him? Because if we're being honest, most of us don't respond like Boaz does. Why is it that we don't? And I've thought for a lot this last week. And I, the reason I came up with is because I don't think we can respond that way. And I don't think we can because we're holding on so tightly to that thing or that person. Coveting idolizing them, or whatever it may be. So then we're, when we're confronted with the possibility of disappointment, we can't respond like him because of sin. 
Because we're, we're holding on so tightly to that person, so tightly to that thing. I shouldn't respond like Boaz, but I can't respond like Boaz because I love this person, this thing. This is an idol in my life. And I just can't let it go. I'm not saying you can't feel disappointed. You can't feel sad. You can't be hurt. You can't cry. I'm not saying that. But there comes a point in which we're over here and Boaz is over here and we're nowhere clear, clear or nowhere close to the way he responds to this situation. Disappointment's going to come. Disappointment's going to happen. How do you respond when it faces you? Are you like these women? Do you trust God the way they do? Do you trust God with your relationships? A lot of single people in here, I know that. You want to get married? Well, good news is 93% of you are going to. So, yeah. The 93, right? But do you trust God? You want to get, you say, I want to get married. Okay, are you praying about that? Say, I'm in a dating relationship right now. Are you praying about that? Do you trust God the way these women do? In the context, I don't have to make an application, like in the context of relationships. It's already made for me. I just have to tell the story. Do you trust God the way they do? And if we're honest, we don't. Many of us don't. We trust God, but in a very calculated way. In a way like the, how we often trust God when it comes to like the giving of, say, our money. Also something we have a tendency to hold on very tightly to. Where it's, alright, I get money, get a paycheck, however it comes in, and it's usually, alright, federal taxes, state taxes, alright, what do we got here? Alright, this is for FICA, Social Security, this is Walmart, this is uh, Starbucks, this is shopping, this is Walmart again, we like Walmart, this is Netflix and Hulu, alright, what do I have left over? Okay, I'll just, I'll just, just trickle that, just trickle that down to God. That doesn't take any trust or faith. But many of us trust God that way, and we call it faith. And it really, it's not so much at all. I love the Numbers, I think, 18 principle. And I shared this in the Malachi 3.8 sermon that I preached back in the spring. Talk about trust. They'd harvest. And harvest is the equivalent of, I mean, this is working capital. Okay, this is money. They take the very best of their harvest and they go and they just give it to God. The, the very best. And the amazing thing about when they would do this is they would do this before they had finished harvesting everything else so they wouldn't know how much they had left over. I'm just going to come and I'm going to give you my very best, God. I'm going to give this relationship to you, God. And I don't know, I haven't calculated how it's going to work out, okay? So we, we usually trust God in the inverse, right? All right, that's federal, that's social. All right, what do I have left over after I've gone through my, my budget? All right, then I'll trickle that down to God. As if that's somehow worship, trust, or faith. That's not whatsoever. Do you trust God like these women do? When it comes to things in your life that you really love, relationships or the idea of a relationship or money or something else, do you trust God like them? And you say, that's really hard to do. 
You think it's easy for them? You think it's easy for these ladies? I told you this was a bad plan. If this plan doesn't work out, Ruth may live in poverty for her whole life. You don't think that's scary? Say, why can't we respond like Boaz? Because we hold on so tightly to things. We don't trust God. We say we do. We don't. No, there's a lot riding on this crazy plan. And the fact that Naomi, of all people, the, the, the schemer, the calculator, the fact that she comes up with this is mind-blowing. But it only goes to show the level of trust that she and Ruth have. Because the only way this works out is if God's in it. Are you like them? If you're not, then repent. Ask God to help make you like them. God, give me the type of trust and faith that these women have. Help me to to be the type of man like Boaz. Even when I, I face disappointment, real heartache and disappointment in the eyes, I can say, Blessed be the God who gives and takes away. You want an application? I don't have to tell you a story. You already have one right here. So as the band comes, I want to pray for us right now. God, please help us. We need your help, Lord. I'm sorry, God, even in the times of my own life where I'm, I'm, I'm like a limelech. I just measure things through what makes the most financial decision and I ignore other aspects. Help us, God, to remember that our God is king. That's what Elimelech's name means. My God is king. I pray that you give us the type of trust, the type of faith, the type of resolve in knowing that our God can do anything. That we quit trying to manipulate and, and, and quit trying to engineer situations to happen. And, and at some point, just take a step back and say, God, you're either in this or you're not. Make it clear and help me to respond like Boaz in the face of disappointment. Knowing that it's okay to be sad, it's okay to be disappointed. But God, help us to, to be like him. To be able to say, blessed be the God who gives, who takes away. Because he's still in charge, even if things don't work out the way I wanted it to. God, help us to trust you the way these ladies did. They're awesome examples for us. Naomi and Ruth, awesome examples. Help us to trust you the way they did. They have that type of crazy faith, whether it's like them in relationships or, or with money or with whatever else that we may be holding on too tightly to. I realize what I'm asking is a lot. So I pray with St. Augustine, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. God, enable us, help us to be like these, these people. And in so doing, to be more like you. Amen.